outfit. And um, I learned that everybody there competed with their shirts off. So you got to look good with your shirt off. So <laughs> even the age yeah. groupers, even I know the elites do that kind of stuff, especially in CrossFit. But even the age groupers were, were uh, even the age groupers, even the guys that were my age in the 45, 40 year olds were running with the shirts off. Yep. Wow. Uh, well, did you uh, did you bear all? Hey everyone, welcome to the Beyond Talent Podcast, where passion, mindset, and movement come together. I'm your host, Andy Lai. With me is Coach Ted Ramos. If you're joining us again, welcome back. If this is your first time, thanks for listening. Ted, what's the latest in the great city of Chicago? I know there's a lot going on over there. That's right. Uh, I don't even know where to start, but I'll start with this. Um, Last episode, I was talking about the New York Marathon entries are opening up. So I threw my hat into the ring and uh, I entered the lottery for the New York Marathon. So hopefully I get selected and I, I can race that in November. All right. I, I, was there a big queue? It took a while to get in there. To, it took to, a while to get in, but um, after the second day, it wasn't so it wasn't so hard to get in. The second day. So you had to wait like an, uh, over a day to just to get into to, to fill in the application. Wow. Yep. It, yep. I just, I just gave up and then I came back to came, came back, back later. And tried. Ah, gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, let's hopefully you have better luck than I did last year and you get in, but you know what? Uh, I'm sure you've got plenty of other things uh, lined up this year, Ted. Yeah, that's right. Like actually I don't mind if I don't get in because I just got an email from Ironman and they said that, um, they were going back to the Ironman Wisconsin 2022 race and they're adding some more, entries into the world championship from this race so then after they sent me that email they sent me another one like two hours later said hey congratulations <laughs> we selected you for the iron man world championship so congratulations ted that's yep, awesome it, so this one's going to be in uh in uh france in nice france so it's a little bit it's a i don't know if it's less prestigious or i don't know if it's going to be a nicer venue or um not as not as prestigious, not as historic, but it's going to be a different place, and I'm sure this is going to be a nice place, a nice venue for the race. Looks like it goes from the oceans up into the mountains, and then back to the resort towns. So I'm pretty excited. I, I signed up yesterday, and uh, now I just got to find out the logistics to figure out how you get out there. How I'm going to get my bike out there, and uh, I'm sure it's going to cost me a lot of money to do this. Well, Ironman, uh, the tri bike transport, are they going to be able to? Do they, do they, are they going to have to throw Nice into the uh, logistics there? I'm sure Tribe Bike Transport will do something that uh, gets the bikes out there. Yeah. Yeah, just you're good at packing your bike too. So, you know, definitely pack that thing well because I know one time they uh, jacked up my derailleur. Um, so, yeah, you definitely want to, you definitely want to take that off and pack it well. But you're an expert at packing. I remember you helped me pack my bikes when I moved uh, from Chicago to out here to Seattle. So appreciate that. Oh, nice. I don't even remember that, but yes, <laughs> I am an expert in, I am an expert in moving bikes. <laughs> you don't remember that? Wow. Actually, <clears> I do, actually not to mention, I do remember coming over to your house in uh, yeah. your old apartment. I remember that yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I remember getting boxes uh, from a local bike shop and then uh, called you up and you were able to come help me. So that was awesome. Um, so Ironman, World Championships, that's in September, early September, I think September 9th. Yep, September in nice 10th, France. I think. 
So I might see how if 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 I can get out there with you, because if I do, we're going to record this. It's this is this is going to be an epic documentary. We're going to have to do for you, Ted. Ted's first uh, Ironman World Championships in Nice, France. I kind of wish it was Kona though, because that's where it's always been. You know, this is weird. Yeah, that's why I said it's kind of it's it's different for sure. Like it doesn't have the same history. It's a nice place to go to, but it just doesn't have that that same mystique, the Kona mystique. Right. And but the women are doing it in Kona the same day. No, they're doing the women are doing it a month later in Kona. Okay, a month later, but it's in yeah. Kona. See, they broke it up, which is weird. Yep. So it, I think the way it's going to work now is on alternating years, the men will be in. Uh, one location and the women will be in the other location. Why is that? Is it was it just too many people? I think and it's one... so they can get more people into the race, so they could offer more slots. They can get more people in. And so you're saying they want to get more people into the world championships, and this is the way to do it. So it gives them more capacity by breaking it up. Mm-hmm. Well, look, you know, you are still. You were still really close to making it regardless. You were, I think, seventh in your age group, weren't you? I believe so, yes. I mean, we can look this up. And I believe the difference between f- the, the the spots between fifth, sixth, and seventh were really, really tight. Yeah, and I think they probably offered like another 50 slots to everybody because that's, that's how they're doing it for Ironman Texas. And they're doing it for quarter lane. They're offering 100 slots at those races. So they probably went back retroactively and offered another 100 slots at uh, Ironman Wisconsin. In total. To field. In total. Yeah. Across all age groups and such, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, that's still, you are still, t- you are still number seven. And I think that deserves a, uh, a slot. I'm excited to train and day one of training starts today because I haven't been doing any swimming. I haven't been doing any cycling. Up to this point, I've just been focusing on the run, which which I think is is still good because <laughs> you know the motto: you bike for show and run for dough. Who are the ones who who are the guys who passed you up at Wisconsin, Ted? They got off the bike after you, but they got you on the run. So I think get I think all the running you're doing is only going to help. I don't think it's taken away from your biking. I think it's only helping your running, in my opinion. But, but you're the coach, so. Yep, I agree, and I think it's. I'm, I think I'll be stronger on the run for the next Ironman that I do. Absolutely, good about it. Absolutely, especially after you ran three seventeen in Dallas. I mean, I think you're going to be. I think you're going to be in way better run shape. If I can make it out there, uh, we're going to have to do a video documentary. Going to have to throw this out on YouTube. Let everybody see the journey. Um, into Nice World Championships and see what happens. So more pressure, Ted. More pressure. Do you like it? You like the pressure? I, I like the pressure. Pressure makes diamonds, right? Yep. All right. What else is happening, man? That's big news. What else is happening over the last couple of weeks? I know you you haven't just been sitting on the couch eating potato chips. Uh, well, I, I have been enjoying some potato chips, but <laughs> I've also been doing some new new exciting races. So. I've told you about um, how my quest this year was to try out a whole bunch of different running competitions, right? Yep. So the first one was a marathon. I've never done a marathon before. So I did a marathon two months ago. Uh, 
I've never done a track meet. So last month I did a track meet. I did a track meet and I ran a mile on the track, on the boards. And then the week after that, I went out and did a 10K trail run. I've done trail runs before, but it's the first one in a long time. So <clears throat> looking for something new and different, I found this event called High Rocks. And High Rocks is a sport that combines functional training exercises interspersed with one, one kilometer runs. So the eight functional exercises in High Rocks are 1K ski erg, a 50 meter sled push with 335 pounds on it, 50 meter sled pull with 235 pounds on it, 80 meters of burpee broad jumps, 1K of the Concept 2 ski erg, uh, not ski erg, the row erg, 200 meters farmer's walk carrying 55 pounds in each hand. Wow. 100 meters lunging with a 45 pound bag on your shoulders. And 100 deep squat wall balls. We have to throw it approximately 12 feet high and you have to use a 13 pound medicine ball. And in between each of those is a 1K run? Yep. So in between each of those is a 1K, one, one kilometer run. And that adds up to what? what, what how many? 8K? 8K of running and the event took me an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. I mean, 350 pound sled push and then 235 pound sled pull. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. How, yeah, how that, you, it, was move, it was hard to move those sleds. <laughs> especially if you're, if you're a weak runner like myself. <laughs> well, you still pulled the 235 pound sled, right? Yes. Did you have gloves on or anything like that? Or was it? Um, no, you just have to grip the rope and pull. And and you, how, how far did you have to pull it? So the, they said it was broken up into four by 12 and a half meters. It seemed a lot longer than that to me. It seemed a lot longer on race day, but they said it was a total of 50 meters and you break it up into four sections of 12 and a half meters. <clears throat> Man, that that's a, yeah, I bet you were pretty sore after that event. Yep. Um, Use a lot of muscles that I haven't used in a, in a while. But hey, that's, that's awesome. That's a he- heck of a strength workout. Um, how, what was the competition like? Yeah, the competition was uh, really, really good, actually. There were a lot of good athletes out there. Uh, I would say it was kind of a mix between runners and a CrossFit crowd. So you'd okay. see some people who were kind of like built pretty well, but then they could still run really well as well. Yeah, so not, I, not I, I, too big, not too big, but looked strong and yep, definitely Looked run. strong, looked fit. And um, I learned that everybody there – competed with their shirts off. So you got to look good with your shirt off. So <laughs> even the age groupers, even I know the elites do that kind of stuff, especially in CrossFit, but even the age groupers were, were uh, yeah, even the age groupers, even the guys that were my age in the, the 40, 45, 40 year olds were going with the shirts off. Yep. Wow. Uh, well, did you, uh, did you bear all or did you, uh, I saw a picture of you doing the, um, you sent me a picture of you doing the wall balls. You still used to, I think you were wearing, the tank from the, the marathon. Was that the same tank? I think so, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so you you definitely uh you know kept the kept the shirt on. Good for you. Yeah, I'm not there yet. I'm not <laughs> at the fitness level where I can take my shirt off. <laughs> then I have to get back to shaving as well, too. Gotta gotta shave down and <laughs> make myself a little more aerodynamic. The winner of the age group, how how much faster did that guy do do it in? Well, it's interesting because there was like it depends on how you look at the the results. I think there was one guy in my age group who was in the pro division or something like that. Okay, it says um, 
it initially said that the winner was in 107. It was a guy from France, and it said he did 107. But he's pro. And he wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't a pro. He's just a regular age grouper. And then if you look at the the results from another one, um, another filter, it says a guy from Spain did it in 58 minutes. In your in the age group, in my age group. So he wasn't. So he was probably pro. The 107 guy was the winner of the age group. The other guy, yeah, was the, the 107 guy started in my wave. So I think that got me maybe like 14th. You depend depend on how you look at. It, I was either 14th or 16th in my age group out of approximately 40 to 50 people in my age group. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Very good. Hey, that's a lot of that's a lot of weight you had to move around that day, man. So. Um, I'm glad you weren't just sitting on the couch eating potato chips. Uh, you could eat some potato chips after doing that, and that, that would have been all good. So, well done, Ted. Well done. Are, do you do you plan on doing another one? It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting crowd. I think people who do those types of events they travel all over the country and they do more than one. So it seemed like people were familiar with each other, even though it, the event was in Chicago. I don't think it was a lot of people from Chicago. I think it was a lot of people traveling from all over the place. But even the age groupers, you're saying, yeah, even kind of knew each other. Yep, because they were talking about what flights they came in on and when they're flying out of town and stuff like that. Okay, all right. Well, they came. They came to your town, Ted. They came to your right. town. The fittest they people in the country came, to, came came over here. I tried to defend honor, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it. <laughs> they threw down with the local, and uh, hey, I think you held your own, man. That's good yeah. stuff, especially since but, that's not something you do all the time. I know I've seen you on the ski erg um, in some of your in some of your uh, updates, but that's a lot of stuff. I, I don't I don't see you doing sled pulls and sled pushes often. Um, wall balls are an interesting dynamic, but I think you can handle those. The one k runs in between. How did you feel on those runs in between those events? So that's a good question. I. I I'd like to analyze it from the coach's point of view and say, how was my pacing for those 1K runs? Okay. So I, I looked at it, um, and the first two kilometers were done pretty fast. I would say it was done at, like, my 10K pace. And then nice. after that, your heart rate's just spiking like crazy when you're doing all these strength exercises. So you're going from an aerobic pace to what's now an anaerobic heart rate. So then you get out there and not only your muscles burning and your muscles are sore and tight, but your heart rate's also skyrocketed. So then you got to get out and run. So then I found that for kilometers three through eight, the pace kind of came down to what my marathon pace would be. So it's probably running like uh, 730 miles at that point, 730 to 740 for my mile pace. I mean, my kilometer pace. Yeah. So looking at my heart rate, it was at 90% of my max for the entire event. I looked at my zones. I spent less than one minute in zones one, two, and three. I spent 58 minutes in zone four and 23 minutes in zone five. That's a lot. So it's it's as intense as a cyclocross race or a 10K run or anything like that. Yeah, but in a 10K run, you're going to finish that 10K in under an hour. You've you've mm-hmm. just spent over an hour in zones four and five, which is pretty intense. Yeah, and I would liken it to a cyclocross race where you keep crossing over into that zone five and keep keep redlining it, and then you have to kind of recover while you're still trying to go hard. 
Yeah. There's no time for recovery. There's no easy, easy spots. You didn't find points of recovery during the run and the, and the different events. Not at all. Cause you have to go from one event to the other, to the next as quickly as possible. So even when you're running through the transition from run to sport, you still got to kind of, kind of move fast. You can't just yeah. take a break if you want to, if you want to do well. Yeah. In those, in these events like this, it's all about pacing though. It's all about pacing. Mm-hmm. So you'd, a, yep. you don't burn out, you don't, you don't explode and, and just, you know, blow the engine. Uh, because I remember back in the day when I was doing CrossFit and I had entered in, uh, a CrossFit competition, you had to pace yourself. You had to know that you could go beyond a certain point. Otherwise you were just going to put yourself in a deficit and you, you recovering from that would be worse than just slowing down a little bit. Is that kind of how you felt? You just had to pace yourself, but even with your pacing, you still were in zone four and five all that time. So I, I think that's a good, that's a testament to your fitness. Yep. Absolutely. Like there was, there was, uh, I always had to bring it down on the runs. Like I always had to say, okay, let's make sure we settle in. And I think the aerobic events were what helped me the most. So you start off with the run and then you go into skier and then you run again. So I was able to kind of settle into the race and then redlining through the sled pushing and the burpee broad jumps. And then you bring it back to the aerobic part where it's run, row, run. So then I was able to kind of like settle in again, relying on just the aerobic system until you get to those last three where you do the farmer's walk, the lunge and the deep squat uh, wall balls. So how did you fare on the run on each of those eight uh, one kilometer runs in comparison to the others? Did you feel like you were one of the faster runners or were all those other guys pretty fast too? So it's a pretty good question. Um, When I went into the event, I thought I would be one of the faster runners. But when they said go, I realized I wasn't one of the faster runners there. And a bunch of guys just ran ran off in in front of me. So I was thinking, all right, they probably don't know how to pace themselves. I'm going to catch them up late, catch up to them later. But I never did. They were just gone. <laughs> and oh, um, oh man, how many? How many? A handful. Um, I, I counted myself in fifth place in my wave. Okay. And I think I stayed pretty much in fifth place throughout the entire race. Okay. In my wave. Okay. Of people that started. Okay. But um, as waves went off after me, I could tell there was a lot of guys that were faster than me. Like I was passing a lot of people. Don't get me wrong, I was passing a lot of people out there. But I definitely was not the fastest runner out there. Wow. That's interesting. And, and like I said, they, they, were, they were bigger guys. They didn't look like traditional runners. They weren't like skinny, yeah. weakling runners. These were like guys with pretty good builds uh, passing me on the, on the inside. Well, and, and this was your age group too. So we're talking. This is my age group and then other age groups as well. 40-year-old muscled up dudes killing it on the run. Yep, like I said, they were fit. They were we got, fit, well-rounded athletes. We got work to do, Ted. We got work yeah, to do. Exactly. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Hey, it's great to see that there are so many athletes out there doing stuff like this. It's inspiring. You should see if they have one in Seattle. I'll come out and do it with you. I'll we'll take a look at the schedule because it sounds like they're expanding. They're getting bigger. It sounds like this is sort of a I don't want to say a toned down CrossFit. It's 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 a hybrid kind of situation where you have you're not doing Olympic lifting and things like that. So to your point, it's more of like a functional uh, type of workouts, which I like. 
and it, it still brings in, you know, people from that CrossFit world, people who are not, and it gives kind of a, a bigger, uh, a bigger, wider range of, of participation. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the high rocks format is definitely geared more towards a endurance athlete. So guys like us could do well simply on the running aspect of it. Even if we have to struggle through the, the, the muscle part. Maybe that's going to be something that I throw on the calendar for 2024. We'll see. We'll see. It's interesting. I like it though. I like those different events. Those are, those seem fun. I like changing between events, things like that. That, 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 that kind of competition is, is fun. Do you know what high rock stands for? Is it stand for something? Uh, I have no idea. Actually. I, I was, I, I was, I'm, I've been meaning to look up what it means. Cause, um, it has to, it has to be an acronym for something. It's, it's gotta be letters. the ultimate guide to high rocks, the world series of fitness. High rocks is a competitive indoor fitness race where anyone can compete against themselves or anyone else in the world. Okay. Well, tell me what high rocks means. But going back to that functional exercise, I have to admit, like, as I've been doing these exercises for the last couple of months, I can really appreciate the sled push in terms of like how it applies specifically to running or how it applies to cycling as it's a unilateral exercise where you push with one leg, then you push with the other leg. You have to drive the hips. You have to fully extend the leg at the end. And it's a good way to build strength. I think it's going to be a good way to build strength to increase your stride length or increase your downward force when you're pedaling a bicycle. Oh yeah. So I think the sled push is going to be something that's a staple of my training from here on out. And if, yeah, if you have access to that, I think that's fantastic to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think this is interesting. I de- it definitely motivates me to get stronger um, and get back into that, that type of shape. I'm, I'm definitely not, near that shape at this point in time. Um, but I think getting, keeping your strength as you get older is important. And, um, maybe not to the extent of some of these, uh, dudes that we're seeing here. A lot of these younger guys are, are pretty, pretty jacked, but, um, in any case, uh, this is a very cool event you did, Ted. Yep. It was definitely fun. I'm going to do it again. Well, if you're doing it again, we need to, we need to coordinate. Sounds good. I'll hold you to that. All right. What else? Is that it? Is that, is that all you've done since uh, the last episode? <laughs> like what else? Uh, yeah, that's, that's all. That's all I got. I think. So how's your, how's your training going? Uh, it's, it's going pretty good. I've been building steadily building each week on my mileage, um, in training for the Eugene marathon at the end of April. Uh, my strength routine hasn't been keeping up as much as I'd like. I've sort of been substituting my strength routine, with uh, weekly Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. So I signed up uh, for Brazilian jiu-jitsu at the school that a buddy of mine goes to. He's a black belt there. He's been going there for many years. And I've gone to four or five classes now since the beginning of the year. And it's a great substitution for your core work because there's just a lot of getting off the ground, doing a lot of moves where you're on your back and you're on your side. So you're essentially like in a plank and, or just doing a lot of, uh, crunches by doing some of these movements. You're, you're really activating your core in many ways. And then on top of that, once you stop doing the techniques or, uh, practicing the techniques and you go into more of the sparring at the end in practice of that technique that you just learned, it, 
you start to really use your muscles in ways that you normally don't. It's completely different. It's not like doing any weight training. It's not like doing any kind of uh, lifting or anything like that, but you still get that burn the next day because just think about, you know, wrestling another human being, you're, you're pretty much, you know, in this, I don't know what you call it, isometric type of movement or, uh, you know, where you're, you're, you're pushing against something and you're getting resistance and it's, it's, you're activating your muscles all the time. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like I wrestled a bear the next, you know, after when I, when I feel my body the next day, um, it's really the way that I'm getting my strength routine right now. And I think it's still good. Um, because I just feel like going to the gym and doing weights or whatnot, it's, it's really boring. Um, just doing it by myself. I don't have a training partner anymore. And so that's how I substitute it. But I know that I'm going to, I need to do a little bit more than that as well. So we'll, we'll start to add in, in the coming weeks. I still have what, 10, 10 weeks or so to the race. When I was younger, I had a little bit of interest in, um, mixed martial arts, but let me ask you this. Do you get punched or hit when you do this stuff? No, there's no punching. It's Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is grappling, uh, on, you know, you're on the, you do a lot of technique on the ground and the rules around Brazilian jiu-jitsu don't, uh, include striking or anything like that. So you're really learning grappling techniques. Obviously it's a, it's a huge foundational base, um, when it comes to MMA though. So as things go to the ground, those techniques become relevant. Obviously, when you're still on the ground, you're rolling around and you're fighting, you you can still strike. And that's what you see in MMA because that's the rules allow for that. But if you're just doing, say, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition, there's no striking at all. It's all just grappling. Now, there's gi and there's no gi. With gi, you're obviously wearing uh, the gi and, and it's, it's, it mimics clothing like in the real world. Um, so you can grab onto the gi as part of that. So it's like if you can grab onto somebody's jacket or their collar or their sleeve on their on their shirt or things like that. I like doing gi. I've only been doing gi uh, jujitsu for that reason. No gi is good as well. You you no gi is more applicable to say MMA because in MMA you're not you don't wear a gi and generally you don't you you know have very minimal clothes. So you're not doing the techniques where you're grabbing onto uh, clothing and things like that. Interesting. So I how, think how it's week, how many times a week do you do this? So I've been doing it about once a week. Um, typically on my rest days from running Monday on Mondays, Monday nights, there's a, there's a class and that class is it's, it's actually not the beginner class. The beginner class is on Thursday nights and I probably should go to that at some point, but I've been jumping in. I call Monday nights, the lion's den because it's like full of Brown belts and black belts for the most part. Um, there's still you know, a mix of blue belts and, and some purple belts, but, uh, my buddy goes, Mike, my friend, Mike Lambert, who's a black belt at kindred jujitsu. Uh, he goes there on Monday nights often. And so I like to go there. He, in fact, he taught, he did the instruction last Monday. Uh, and it was really good. In fact, the, the guy that I was paired up with was commenting how, how Mike was such a good instructor and Mike typically doesn't do the instruction on Monday night, but he shows up and um, it was interesting because I, I was telling him later, I'm like, Hey man, you know, you're getting some good feedback here. Keep on, keep on instructing or, you know, keep up the coaching there. 
So nice. That, that that's going to lead into the next subject. But before we go to that one, I want to ask you: Do you feel like you need to do any training to train for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Like, do you feel like you'd be better if you did some gym work, or do you? Because I I would imagine you've got a lot of pressure on your joints and uh, things like that when you're trying to prevent people from putting you in joint locks. <laughs> yes. So, you know, when you're when you're training, you you obviously have to know the pressure you're applying. And so typically the more advanced you are, you you're very cognizant of how much pressure you're applying. So generally white belts are are less attuned to that. And so they might uh, they might put more pressure than they need to. And, and so you got to be careful, but, but everyone I've worked with have been, have been very, uh, sensitive to how much pressure they're applying when you're doing these techniques. And I don't know if there's a way to prepare. I think you just, if you're going to do Brazilian jitsu, you just have to start and you just start slowly. And I think having flexibility in your body um, and, and having that mobility in your body is good. So if you're not very flexible, you're not very mobile, you might want to work on that a bit um, as you're jumping into it. So that would be my, my, my only thoughts around how would you kind of get into it from a, uh, in, in preparing your body. Yeah. So you're talking about your coach and how you enjoy the coach's knowledge and expertise. Um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, do people always have coaches showing them what to do, helping them through the through the training and all that stuff? Yeah. So when you go to class, <clears throat> there's typically a designated instructor for that class. And then there's uh, other higher-level belts that will be part of, say, the demonstrations for the, the moves that you're going to practice during that class. And so you go through um, a series of, of – of moves for that you practice and then you work on those, um, at the end of the class. But yes, you generally have a instructor for that, uh, class. And in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, if you're a black belt, they typically will, you're, you're, you're called a professor actually. And, um, but you'll find Brown belts doing, doing class instruction as well. In fact, you'll find that you might see a lot of brown belts doing instruction because they're trying to earn their way into being a black belt. And that's kind of one of the ways of doing that. I see. So it's interesting. Like I was, I was asking about the coaches because um, it's one of those things that I was thinking about. Lots of sports need coaches, right? But when it comes to endurance sports, I'm an endurance, full disclosure, I'm an endurance coach. And I find that a lot of people just decide to go it alone. Endurance sports are what I would call a solitary pursuit. But in any sport, if you want to excel, whether we're talking about junior level, entry level kids, eight-year-old kids playing sports, or you go all the way up to the NFL and you're talking about Patrick Mahomes at the highest level, he has a whole team of coaches, whether he's got a quarterback coach, an offensive coordinator, a head coach, a strength and conditioning coach, he probably has a mental skills coach, um, the guy's an expert at what he does. He's very good at what he does, yet he still has to rely on a whole team of coaches. And even at the lower levels, they need those whole, whole team of coaches to keep them organized, teach them the fundamentals. Absolutely. But I think there's a disconnect in the middle with when it comes to endurance sports where lots of people say, hey, I'm just going to go alone. I'm just going to do this on my own, and I'm going to figure it out as I go along. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to have uh, a coach or an instructor for whatever it is that you're, you're learning 
and mm-hmm. especially for anything that requires a significant amount of technique, right? And mm-hmm. so you can go and have one-on-one sessions for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or any martial art and get one-on-one training or one-on-one instruction, but you you still have to practice with other other athletes uh, in order to in order to understand uh, that particular discipline, right? Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just learning technique, learning technique with an instructor. You have to apply that with some other person in practice to understand. And not only that, with different people, different body types, diff- you know, things like that. So why do you think so many endurance athletes choose to go uncoached? So I think number one, one of the barriers is cost. And I don't know what that, that might be fairly consistent depending on where you live and things like that. But that's one area. The other reason I think people might not get a coach is because maybe they just don't feel comfortable and maybe they never had one and they don't understand how that relationship works. For me, I don't profess to know everything and I actually like working with coaches. In fact, I've worked with you and I don't always work with a coach like I'm not like I am now. I don't I don't have a coach as I'm trying to prepare for uh, qualifying for Boston. However, I did uh, come to you for one-on-one coaching, remote one-on-one coaching for uh, the half Ironman in Oceanside, 7.3 Oceanside, many years ago. And I, the reason that I wanted to coach for that race, not sorry, it wasn't that race. It was for Victoria. I had just finished Oceanside. I wanted to do better than I did at Oceanside, and I knew I know I can. And so I came to you for coaching to hopefully get a better time in Victoria, even though they're different courses. And we probably should have taken that into account. However, there are a lot of other factors that we can get into another time. But the reason why I approach you for that is because I had a specific goal in mind. And for me, if I have a specific goal that I absolutely want to achieve and I don't want to leave any stone unturned, I get a coach. And that's why that time I called you up. I said, Ted, we're on a mission now. We've got a mission. Are you with me? This is what I want to do. Let's get after it. And, and we did. So that's why yeah, I got that, it. That's a good point. That's a good point. Cause I feel like coaching, like as a, as an endurance coach, I think we're on the point of either becoming extinct or evolving. And in order to evolve as an endurance coach, we have to say, okay, what do we, what, what do we provide to an athlete that they can't get from YouTube or they can't get from a $20 training plan that they get off of training peaks or they can't get from an app that tells them, Hey, do this every day. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of those factors. Like you said, that performance factor, that leaving no stone unturned is a important aspect of why people need to work with a coach. And, uh, <clears throat> my wife is in education and she's currently taking her board certified, uh, exams or classes for uh becoming a certified educator she's already she's already been a teacher for 20 25 years but she needs to take this class to um i guess elevate her knowledge in the subject and to bump up her pay scale but they do a lot of online classes so i sit here and listen to their classes and i view a coach as being kind of like a teacher and one of the big themes of her classes is that they talk about different differentiating the curriculum for the students who are not going to fall within that bell curve of 
what works. So I think when you have a training plan online, that's going to appeal to the middle of the bell curve, right? But then there's all these other people who learn differently. There's all these people who have different issues that they need to deal with in order for that plan to be successful. And if you don't make those adjustments for those people outside of the bell curve, then they're not going to be successful at their race. Good point. Even within the bell curve, Ted, I think you still get marginal gains in that. I don't know if these $20 training plans or something you see off YouTube is going to really help somebody. Uh, obviously, if they're coming off the couch, anything's going to help them, right? So yep. if you go from zero, you you throw in any kind of a plan off of anything, you're going to see a gain. It's mm-hmm. It's once you've been doing it for a little bit and that gain is achieved and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I am a little fitter. I am a little faster. How do you then go to the next level? And that gets tricky. Uh, and I think that applies across the entire curve. Yep, absolutely. And um, people always seek out different qualities in the coach, right? Like, what would you say was the key quality that you sought out in the coach? That's a great question. For me, uh, some familiarity is important for me. So I had, I've known you, I'd worked with you, uh, you know, in the indoor cycling classes and I, mm-hmm. I got to know you and your personality. So that was helpful for me to know what Ted's like, how he coaches. You need somebody that, that kind of complements your, your own personality in a way. You need somebody that, that you, you need someone who's kind of like the yin, to, the yin to your yang, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So yep, for absolutely. me, I'm pretty, I'm pretty motivated. I, I'm, I'm pretty driven in, in many things that I do. And I, I want somebody who can calm me down. Like I felt like you have that temperament that kind of calms me down and that worked with me. And not only that, I know your attention to detail. I know, uh, you know, you've also been there as an athlete. And that's one thing that I look for as well. I want a coach. If I go to any, if I go to get a coach for anything, I want to know that they've been there where I'm trying to get to. I want to know that they've been there because I honestly don't know how you coach somebody to get somewhere if they've never been there themselves. You can argue it's possible. Uh, and, and most of it is mindset and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I like somebody who's got the experience and has the right personality um, and that understands, you know, kind of where I'm trying to go. Yeah, it's interesting that you say you look to somebody who's been there. Like that's that's one of the reasons why I still stay active. Like I think I could rest on my laurels and say, yeah, I used to be a pretty decent athlete. I used to win some races. But I think when I continue to to train on my own, I experience the same struggles that the athletes that I coach experience. And then I think it makes me a more compassionate coach. It makes me more identify with the struggles they're having. I can identify with them not being able to get the training in because they're busy with work or they're busy with family or other things like that. And I can say, okay, this is what works for me. Maybe you could try this. So if I'm not if I'm not currently in training, then you kind of forget about that stuff. You kind of forget about having that compassion or you, you forget about the, the daily struggles that the athletes are going through themselves. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I, I think you understand that you have family, you have work and you're training on the side as well. All of that plays into you understanding where your athletes are coming from in their daily activities. Right. Yeah. And that personality match is such a good point too. Like I feel like there's some athletes I 
can't work with or I shouldn't work with and I should kind of direct them to somewhere else if the personality match isn't isn't right because then they're going to pay money and not get what they want out of it and I'm not going to probably enjoy working with them as much either. So you have to look at what the coach does, what their strengths are as a coach and say, okay, is this what I'm looking for in my coaching? Like I think at some levels people are looking for a teacher and they need to be taught stuff. Mm-hmm. Other people are looking for a little, little bit more beyond a teacher. Maybe they're looking for a strategist. And that's going to be the coach who teaches them how to win a race. It says, okay, you're good enough to get in the top 10. How do you actually win this race? And picking apart things like pacing or reacting to your competitors or how to manage a course better. Those are the types of things that the coach at the higher level will provide for the athlete to help them get over that hurdle of getting their first win or getting their first podium, whatever they may be seeking out. So you're saying, you're saying that, you know, there's different levels of coaches or teachers in that, you know, there's some who are probably good at say, focusing on fundamental movements and, and, you know, how to uh, get the technique down. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's another level up to the coaching of how do you apply racing strategies? How do you apply the experience that, that the coach might have to executing a race, right? Yep, so absolutely different, different aspects of coaching that mm-hmm. some coaches might have more of or be better at than others. And then there are some coaches that are good at all of them, right? Yep, absolutely. And I think even how you get that feedback, like, some people might need more verbal feedback in terms of like how you how you manage a race or how you manage a course. Other people might need data feedback and say, okay, the coach will say, okay, this is why you're not climbing as well because you go too hard at this point of the climb and then you run out of gas and you show that to the athlete with data. That might be a way to get that athlete to rein it in if they're a data-driven athlete. Whereas if you just say, pay attention to what your body is telling you and rein it in that might be a different way to tell it to them and it all depends on what the athlete is motivated by or what they focus on when they race and some people they just need a cheerleader they need they need a motivator and they need somebody to say yeah you can do this and maybe you add data to prove that they've done it in the past or maybe just show them the workouts that they've done in the past to, to show them that they can do it in the future but it's all it's all about um taking things from their history and applying it to predicting future performances the history of the athlete or the coach or both both of them actually like the shared experience but also what they've done in training is going to be a predictor of what they can do and it's going to be a big confidence builder if you can reflect on what you've done in training Mm -hmm. and think about that before you go into your race and these are the things that are obviously things you're not going to get from a stock plan or a youtube video or an app that spits out your next workout, right? Yep. Like the stock plan will just tell you what to do every day. And I think a lot of times when you have something emailing you every day, at some point you're just like, yeah, whatever, I'm not going to do it. But if you know that you have to upload your data and your coach is going to start asking you questions, hey, how come you're not doing your workouts? Are you only doing half of your workouts? Why is that? When you're accountable to that, you know you're going to probably try to get that workout in instead of having to answer the question, yeah, I'm being lazy. I remember when I trained with you, Ted, I 
probably did more workouts per week than than ever just because i knew i was accountable i knew what i had to do you laid out the workouts weekly at most basis maybe you only gave me a workout a day or two in advance and and i stuck to those for the most part i remember i never swam twice a week every week throughout training like i did for that race because i was a, that was that's a, that was an area of weakness that i wanted to focus on and i got in I would say 90% of that, of the, the workout plan that you gave me, when I look back at that and I think about what I was thinking prior to the race and I look back at all those workouts I did, it gave me confidence because mm-hmm. I, like, well, I put in the work. So now it's time to execute. Yep. And that's, that's what the training does. The training, the training is what gives you the confidence. And once you see that, you don't have to prove it anymore in training. You say, okay, I'm just going to save it until race day. And then you just bring it all out on race day. So let me summarize a little bit in terms of kind of the different components that or different roles that a coach might play, right? We talked Mm -hmm. about sort of the teacher role in terms of teaching you technique and fundamental skills. You've got the strategist in terms of race execution and uh, pacing and nutrition strategies, things that come with experience and and kind of the know-how of how to do it, how to apply it in the race. You have that role of motivator, cheerleader. You have that role of communicator. Um, that's a really strong attribute that I think a, a coach needs to, to be good at is, is how to communicate with their athletes. Um, you also kind of play physio in a lot of ways, trying to prevent injuries, right? Keeping, making sure your athletes aren't getting injured during their training. You have to hold back their ambition sometimes. Like they're super motivated and they want to do everything hard. And sometimes they say, hey, we got to slow it down a little bit. We got to make sure our hard days are hard and our easy days are easy. Yeah. And I think that's a something that you probably run into a lot with triathletes because triathletes are very type A. You know, they, they want to do all three sports and they want to do it well. And then you also mentioned kind of the data analyst type of role, right? Looking at information, being able to understand that and communicate that back. So there's a lot of different roles and in, in things that a coach needs to be equipped with, right? Yep. Got to wear a lot of, wear a lot of hats. So Ted, you've coached athletes in a lot of different settings, one-on-one, in-person, one-on-one, remote, group training in person, group training remote. I don't know if there's any other scenarios out there, but do you find that any one type of method is more effective than the other and, or have you found ways to adapt certain methods to make it as effective? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it it all depends on the athlete's personality, what they're seeking out from that training. And um, like you said, what their financial obligations are at the time or how much extra cash they have to allocate to this sport and um i would say for you could break it down into like the beginner athlete the intermediate athlete and the advanced athlete and i would say for the beginner level they don't necessarily need to work with the coach one-on-one all the time they're probably going to be better off working with the group because the group's going to be social aspect to it and they'll have fun training with other people they'll be motivated by training with the other people and those people will probably be their friends for, for life, most likely. Like I find that whenever I do training groups, the first year people always attach to those other first year people and then they become training partners for life. Um, 
But I think that that social aspect is what really draws people into it initially. And when you have, let's say, like a weekly workout where you're meeting with a coach, that coach is going to be able to give you some feedback on your technique and tell you how to do things the right way. You learn from that coach how he structures the workout, how to do things the right way. And you start to understand the coaching language. Um, and then for a lot of beginners, they'll probably work with me one-on-one in person to work on their swim technique or whatever they feel is their limiter. If it's really limiting them and it's going to limit their ability to finish that part of the race. So I, I find that I do a lot of one-on-one lessons with beginner swimmers and, um, work with them to make sure that they can one, feel comfortable in the water two feel comfortable in open water, three feel comfortable in groups when they're swimming in a race with other people. And, um, and then finally deal with the race anxiety that they're going to experience on that, on that race morning. Yeah. And then I find like for the intermediate athlete, they might still be into the group, the group training plan where they're enjoying the social aspect and they want to still see a coach on a regular basis, but they don't want to pay for the monthly fee that a coach would charge to work one-on-one remotely. So I think for the intermediate athlete, they can get a lot out of that group training up until the point where they say, okay, this training plan needs to evolve with me. I'm getting better. I can handle more training. I need to have a plan that evolves with me and I'm starting to need more strategies to elevate my performance. And um, that's when they start to become an advanced athlete and they seek out one-on-one coaching where it's usually more remote where I say, okay, I can trust that you know what you're doing. If I write out this plan and I customize it to you, you'll be able to figure out how to train on your own. You'll be able to do these workouts on your trainer. You'll be able to do these workouts outside. The key there is communication. They upload their data. They tell me how they feel about those workouts. And then I can make adjustments to what they say, whether I need to make adjustments to account for injuries that have potential to happen or they need me to explain something better. I need to help have them become more aware of their nutrition and workouts. Um, that's the key elements of conversation or communication as, as I work with the higher level athletes. Do you have any good examples with athletes where you had to make adjustments or, you know, things that kind of pushed you as a coach? Yeah, I got a lot of examples actually. Um, there was one athlete I remember working with who was a pretty good cat four cyclist and he came to me because he wants to upgrade to Cat 3, and he wanted to start winning some races. Uh, this guy was built like a climber, and in this area, it's, it's all criteriums that focus on sprinting at the end. So um, there was a lot of elements to coaching this guy to take him to the higher level. Uh, first of all, we had to seek out races for him that were very specific to his strengths and weaknesses. So doing flat criteriums that end in a sprint were not going to be his bread and butter. We had to seek out road races that were longer. We had to seek out races that had lots of climbing in it. So then that could separate out the heavier riders and then he'd have a better advantage climbing up those hills. So thinking about his race schedule was a key, key factor in planning out his season. And even when he did those criteriums, we still had to make sure that he worked for his teammates to build favor with them. So then when they go out to those hilly races, those same athletes would be willing to work with him so he could be successful at those races. So uh, thinking about the team aspect was important there. Uh, another element that challenged me with this athlete was he, he gave me a book. He said, hey, I've been reading some stuff and I don't have time to analyze all this stuff, but here's a book about how 
a coach from the Eastern Bloc in Russia trains athletes. And they just translated it to English. I want you to read this and apply this idea to me. So it was a book about block periodization, which is a little bit different than traditional periodization. And this coach used it to train rowers to gold medals in the Olympics. And it's all good stuff. It's all really good stuff, highly influential. And once I learned this stuff, it was highly influential in my coaching as well. But I had to digest the information of this coach and start to develop a plan that would work for an athlete who's aspiring not to the Olympics, but to become a winning cat three cyclist. So that's interesting that he gave you a homework assignment, Ted. That's right. He gave me this obscure book and I had to digest the information and process it and figure out how could I apply it to this athlete. And as a coach, I like to, I like to learn new stuff. I like to learn new things. And anytime you learn something new, you're going to say, okay, what can I take from this that I can apply to my other athletes? That's awesome. That's a great story, Ted, but we are out of time for today. I feel like the second half of this episode has been a coach's corner in itself. And with that said, I'm going to hand it over to you to sum things up. All right. Thanks, Andy. So everybody will need a coach at some point in their endurance career. The coach is going to provide the athlete with the roadmap to get to where they want to go. They're going to help you figure out what you're capable of, lay out the map, and show you the steps you need to take on your journey. Then as you get further along in your journey, they're going to formulate the strategy that you need to execute on race day to be the best version of yourself. Before you hire a coach, I recommend you consider four things. First, what personality traits are you looking for in a coach? Some people need a cheerleader who's always positive and lifting you up. Some people need a drill sergeant who's direct and in your face. Second, what do you need as an athlete from the coach? Some people need someone who's going to hold them accountable or just keep them organized. Some people need a coach that's focused on the fundamentals, and some people need a coach that's going to provide high-level strategy. The third thing to consider is that you should look for a coach who teaches on your level. This will differ whether you're a beginner athlete, intermediate, or a professional. The last point to consider is the coach experience in the area that you need the most help. Don't assume they're an expert in everything. Ultimately, a coach will accelerate your learning curve and get you to where you want to go faster. I love it. Thanks, coach. And that's a wrap today. For the listeners out there, if you made it this far, we hope you enjoyed it. We do want you to know that we're working on a list of guests to bring on to future episodes to give you a rich experience in elevating your passion, mindset, and movement. So stay tuned for that. We hope you'll hit that follow or subscribe button and join us in the next episode. Until then, get out there and get after it. <laughs>